This is the Austin Life Church podcast. For more information, please visit us at austinlifechurch.com. My name is my name is John Charbach, and I'm a member down the street at Providence Church, um, and I'm kind of involved in, in exploring church planting down there. And so, uh, our, my pastor is kind of trying to figure out like let's get as many reps as he can. And so, if this is your uh, you know your first week here, and you don't like what you hear, come back next week. <laughs> uh, well, but seriously, it's it's a great honor today, and uh, if you haven't already. I would go ahead and open up, if you have your Bible, to Jonah chapter 4. Uh, my understanding is that it will be also be on the screen here. And let me, just, let me just read the passage today. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under the shade He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it to come up over Jonah that that it might be shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when the dawn came the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity for the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? Let me just uh, pray for us. And, uh, Lord, we hope that you would give me the words to clearly communicate your message from this text. Um, we hope that you would send your spirit upon us to illumine the eyes of our hearts, to see and rejoice in your truth. We hope that you would give us a vision of your glory revealed through your son and that you would help us through this text to comprehend the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of your love in Christ that surpasses knowledge. We pray these things in his name. Amen. All right, well, so in this chapter of Jonah, the last chapter, sort of the major themes of the book are coming to a head. On the one hand, we've seen Jonah's distrust for God and his bitterness towards Nineveh. And on the other hand, we see God's redeeming love towards Jonah, disciplining him, and his redeeming love for Nineveh in restoring them. Jonah wanted God to destroy Nineveh, and instead what God does is he uses Jonah to save Nineveh. Uh, And this is extremely disappointing for Jonah because his plans are basically ruined. And so now in this chapter, God is helping Jonah to process through these events, 
both emotionally and theologically. Uh, and I think Jonah's problem as sort of being revealed here in this text is that you know, he, he's fallen into an us versus a them mindset. Meaning, you know, he wants to see Nineveh destroyed, and so he treats Nineveh like I mean, garbage, for lack of a better word, as if they're not worth saving. Um, and he's sort of reduced God to his own like personal genie or tribal deity, that God exists more or less to do Jonah's will and to accomplish Jonah's purposes. And then when he doesn't, he gets very upset about it. Uh, and he grows bitter and he grows angry. And it, you know, at first glance, it kind of seems crazy, like, okay, well, you know, but, but I think actually we all have our own tendencies to slip into some sort of us versus them mindset. We all, there's always, for all of us, I think there's some us that we think, you know, maybe we wouldn't say it out loud, but implicitly we think that God is for. So whether that's like our political party or a particular national or ethnic identity or um, our socioeconomic class or maybe it's people who are tolerant and loving or frankly for a lot of us it's probably believers, like Christians. We think God is for us uh, and these are the kind of the good people and then there's another group of people over here who God is against in our minds. And maybe it's the rival political party or you know, it's a competing national or ethnic identity or maybe it's a different socioeconomic class or maybe it's people who are intolerant and unloving or maybe it's just non-Christians, unbelievers. We kind of treat them as these are the people that God is against. Uh, and this text takes that view and sort of turns it on its head because God is calling, as we'll see, Jonah out of this us versus them mindset and instead he's calling them into an us for them mindset. Meaning that when God blesses people, he doesn't bless people so that they can lord their blessings over other people, but he blesses them so that they can be a blessing to other people. And unlike Jonah, God does not desire that any should perish, but that all should be brought to repentance. And so I think that's the main point of this text, as we'll, and we'll kind of unpack that as we go, but rather than us versus them, it's God loves us and God loves them. Meaning, as believers, we shouldn't be living against non-believers. We shouldn't be living against the other, but we should be living for non-believers. We should be living for the others. And so this text will kind of unpack that truth in two ways. Number one, that it'll show us God's great love for humanity. And number two, it'll show us humanity's great worth in the eyes of God. And so that'll be our outline for this morning. Humanity's great worth, or God's great love for humanity, and humanity's great worth from God. All right, so point number one, God's great love for humanity. Um, I think Jonah himself sort of highlights God's great love for us. You look at, he's, he's sort of upset because God, he's like, instead of God's actions, yes, because God has forgiven Nineveh, but what Jonah is actually upset about is um, God's character. That he's, he's lamenting the fact that he knows that God is loving, and so the fact that the Ninevites have repented means that uh, God's going to forgive them. Look at the second half of verse 2. He says to God, I know that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. And so Jonah's problem is that he knows that God is merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger and he's abounding in steadfast love. That grace and mercy and long-suffering and love are at the heart of who God is. And, and actually what he's doing here is he's quoting from Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, which for context, like in Exodus 32, 
Moses is up on Mount Sinai getting the Ten Commandments, and he comes down, and he finds the Israelites have decided to defame God by making a, an idol, a golden calf, to, to represent the gods that took us out of Egypt. And, um, you know, it, it, there's a debate between Moses and, and God as to whether or not God should just strike down the Israelites for their, for their adultery, their spiritual adultery. And, um, you know, Moses intercedes for the Israelites, and God forgives them. And this is what he says right before he gives them the, a second copy of the Ten Commandments. He says, this is God speaking about himself. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for the thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sins, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. This is highlighting that God's character is merciful, it's gracious, he's slow to anger, and he's abounding in steadfast love. That's who God is. Now, some of you are probably thinking, if you're like me, you're probably thinking, well, okay, but I see that, but I also see the second half of that verse, which suggests that uh, God will by no means clear the guilty. So, yes, hold that thought. We'll actually come back to that in the text. Um, but that's the big picture of, who, uh, you know, God's character is fundamentally loving. And we see two specific demonstrations of God's love in this text. We see... Uh, First, that Nineveh deserves judgment. Uh, Nineveh is sort of a hotbed of idolatry and pride and brutality. Uh, the prophet Nahum calls it a layer of lions and a city of blood. Uh, it's, it's not a great place. You know, like the ancient Near East is a bad place, and Nineveh is like the worst. Uh, but God's actually seeking to save it. God is sending Jonah with a gracious message of repentance, saying, hey, return to me, repent of your, of your iniquity, uh, and you will be forgiven. And then when they do repent, God relents of the disaster that he was going to send upon Nineveh. And that's the problem that Jonah is now addressing. Uh, so we see, the first way we see God's love is that Nineveh frankly deserves, deserves judgment. Um, but God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love towards Nineveh. I, I think the second way we see God's love in this text uh, is with Jonah. I mean, I think if we're being honest and we're kind of weighing him against the standard of the Bible, uh, Jonah sort of deserves judgment too. Meaning, he's being insubordinate, he's being untrusting, and he's being unloving. And so we see that in verse 1 where he says, uh, but it, and this is God's forgiveness of Nineveh, displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And then we see Jonah begin to lose hope in verse 3 when he says, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me than to, to live, it is better for me to die than to live. And so Jonah is sort of acting like a, I mean, a petulant child, like a spoiled brat. Um, and he's, you know, and, and, then, and then notice, the next thing God does is he gives him this plant, and then the plant dies, and then Jonah gets even angrier, at, you know, and, and the, which brings us sort of to verse 8. Um, when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And then he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And so they kind of note the tone of insolence there with Jonah. That he's, he's talking back to God as if Jonah's in the right and God is in the wrong. And, and then note God's very gentle correction of Jonah. He says, do you do well to be angry? And like, here's a hint. Whenever God asks you a rhetorical question like that, the answer is probably no. Uh, but then Jonah says, yes, 
course I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. As if God's like crazy for asking this question. Um, well, what's going on here is that Jonah is blinded by his bitterness and his anger. He's, he's blinded to God's truth. He cannot see things from God's perspective. And I think, you know, it seem, if I were in God's position, it would be very easy to just abandon Jonah, kind of leave him to his own devices. You want to be a baby, Jonah? Fine. Be a baby. See how that works out for you. You know, you're in the, you're in the, the, the desert wilderness outside of what is modern-day Baghdad. We'll see how long you last without my help. Uh, but instead, what God does is he continues to graciously correct Jonah. And actually, we'll see in verses 10 and 11 uh, that he works very carefully to show Jonah his error. And so the, so the point being that, you know, the second expression of God's love in this text is that Jonah deserves judgment, but God is merciful and gracious, and he's slow to anger, and he's abounding in steadfast love towards Jonah. And so that shows us the love, but remember, we also said, like, hey, hold that thought. You know, like, we're, we're coming back full circle to the idea of God's justice. Because, you know, this text shows us something about who God is. It shows us that God is perfectly loving, or he can be perfectly loving while he's also perfectly just, that he can be perfectly just and perfectly loving at the same time. And so these two examples show us that his justice, like the, the fact that there's nothing in anywhere in Jonah to, to, that, that intimates at all that Nineveh does not deserve judgment. And in fact, God will eventually pour out his judgment upon Nineveh as recorded in the prophet Nahum. Uh, there's nothing in the text to suggest that Jonah's behavior is acceptable or that God is co-signing it. Uh, so, so God's justice is still on display here, but that's not opposed to God's love. Um, that God seeks to restore Nineveh to repentance, and he seeks to restore Jonah to repentance. And, and so, you know, what it, it suggests is that God can recognize evil as evil and still work for the good and to, still work to save the ones who do evil. Uh, and, and so that's true whether or not we're outside of the people of God, like Nineveh, right? Or whether we're part of the people of God, like Jonah. And so if you're like me, and maybe you struggle with this tension between God's justice on the one hand and God's love on the other hand, and you might try to resolve it, I think, in one of two mistaken ways. So the first way says, well, I'll resolve the tension by saying God is all justice. You know, and so what this sounds like is we earn, like, you know, do good things and God will love you. And we'll earn, you know, God's favor through our good works. And, you know, hey, if you don't do good, probably means God doesn't love you. And frankly, I don't really have to love you either, which is very convenient because, you know, I don't really want to do that anyway. Uh, and, but I think this view is actually grounded in self-righteousness. It tells us that, well, we're the good ones, we're the obedient ones, and then everyone else out there is the bad ones that deserve judgment. And so we get so focused on the justice of God that we lose sight of his loving character. Um, but the Bible teaches us that, you know, contrary to the self-righteousness that un- sort of underpins this view, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and everyone stands under God's judgment. Uh, but at the same time, that God loves all of humanity. Uh, and that God rejoices greatly when even one sinner comes back to repentance. So that's one mistaken view, that God is all justice. The other mistaken view is that God is all uh, love. And this, this view sounds sort of like, well, God loves you, so whatever you do is good. And, and it ignores what the Bible teaches us about the horror and the destructiveness of sin uh, and the universality of God's judgment, that God is just, and he will by no means clear the guilty. 
Uh, and this, the view sort of treats God like he's our benevolent grandfather in the sky, and he's kind of smiling at everything we do. Um, and we shouldn't do that. And, uh, you know, like, he's like, oh, there goes John. He's just sinning a little bit. Oh, that's just what John will do. Uh, and it, he's not treating us, it, he, we're not treating him like he's the great creator who created everything for his own glory and is zealous for his own glory and jealous for our affections and jealous for our righteousness. And even worse, it sort of treats Christ like he's our little buddy, you know, who like laid down his life for our sins so that we could live our best life now. Not the, the supremely authoritative God-man who laid down his life and took it up again and who by his death swallowed up death and now he sits upon the throne of the universe as both its king and its judge. And we act as if we're never going to have to stand before his great white throne and give an account for our lives. That we get so focused on the love of God that we lose sight of the fact that the sin is evil and sin has great gravity and weight to it. And, and what that means is that we take the forgiveness of God for granted. Like, of course God will forgive me. That's sort of his job, right? And so that's the tension in this text. And rather than resolving it, this text, you know, the Bible dials that tension up. It doesn't say, oh, it's one or the other. It takes both of them and just turns them up to 11. Uh, and so what the Bible teaches is that you can't do good and that God already loves you. Uh, it, it affirms this tension and then points us to the resolution that we find in Jesus Christ, who is the perfect manifestation of God's love and he's the perfect manifestation of God's justice, that the entire world deserves ju judgment and then while we were still his enemies in a state of cosmic rebellion against our creator, he sent his one and only son to die, to lay down his life so that he could save us. And so God's perfect justice and God's perfect love meet at the cross where he demonstrates, as Paul says, he demonstrates them to be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Just in the sense that sin's penalty was paid in full. That God's judgment is satisfied in Christ and then justifier in that Christ's perfect righteousness is credited to all those who believe in him. And so I think in that way, this text implicitly points us to Christ and his great offer of salvation. That Nineveh rep repented at the preaching of Jonah. And something much greater than Jonah is here in the person of Jesus Christ. Um, that God did not send us a warning of destruction through a messenger like Jonah. He sent us an offer of salvation through his son. And so maybe, you know, you're thinking, you're, you're here and you're not yet a Christian, you're thinking there's maybe some barriers to it, maybe something like, well, you know, God doesn't love me. Um, but God showed his great love for us that while we were still his enemies, he sent, gave us one and only son to die for us so that we could be saved and be adopted as his children. So I don't think that's true. Or maybe you're thinking, well, I'm not holy enough, and actually, okay, fair enough, you're not, but here's the catch, N neither are the rest of us either, that that's not how it works, that no one is holy, right, but the Lord Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin so that in him we could become the righteousness of God, uh, or maybe you say, well, the, you know, the gospel is not for me, that's sort of like people that look a certain way, act a certain way, vote a certain way, uh, but the reality is that the gospel is for all those who believe, that anyone who believes in the Lord Jesus will be saved, and so this text points us to the gospel which resolves the tension that we find between God's love and God's justice. Um, that is, believe therefore in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. If we believe in your, his perfect righteousness, it will be credited to us. And so God's offer of salvation is to everyone, not because of their merit, but because of what he has done in the merit of his son. And why is that? Because God is 
merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Uh, so that's, that's the first point. God's character is loving, that God's great love. Uh, and why does God love humankind in this way? Well, part of the answer, as we just talked about, is that that's just who he is. Like, we see down in verse 11, there's a little piece that everyone's always asking about in Jonah. Like, God even has concern for the cattle. Um, but it's also, I think, the text points to us to the unique love that God has for humans, uh, which comes from their great worth, which kind of brings us to the next point, which is humanity's great worth, which is derived from God. Uh, so this text affirms the, the great worth of humanity, uh, and, and, and actually God himself graciously instructs Jonah on this point. Uh, if you look at verse 5, he says, Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there, and he sat under, the, under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. So Jonah's upset at Nineveh, and he kind of goes out, and he's going, I'll, I'll just see how this all plays out. Uh, and verse 6, the Lord God appointed a plant, which, by the way, is probably the smallest and most insignificant appointing that occurs anywhere in the Bible. Uh, but the Lord God appoints a plant and made it come up over Jonah that he might be a shade over his head to save him from discomfort. And so Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. So God gives Jonah this plant. Uh, it gives him a little comfort. Jonah is uh, filled with gladness. He's exceedingly glad, as the text says. And I think, frankly, this seems a little weird at first if you're like me. Uh, but actually, Jonah is t- using this plant to teach us something, or God is using this plant to teach Jonah something. And we see that the argument of God's making begin to unfold in verse 7. He says, when dawn came the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that, it, so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and say, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry for the plant, angry enough to die. So God gives him a plant, God takes the plant away, and then that makes Jonah even angrier. And so you can sort of start to feel the tension build, like what's God doing here? And then we get to see the answer in verse 10. He says, uh, the, the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor and you did not make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And so God begins to unfold the argument that Jonah greatly pitied this plant Okay, fine, great. You should go ahead and do that, Jonah. But you know what, Jonah? You didn't labor for that plant, and you've only known it for a single day. It came out of nowhere, and it went away out of nowhere. And then God gives us a punchline in verse 11. He says, And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? And so here God is reasoning from the lesser to the greater. The Jonah has a great pity for this plant, which is a plant. A, A of all. B of all, he didn't labor for it. And C of all, it was here today and gone tomorrow. And so by analogy, shouldn't God pity Nineveh, which is a city of 120,000 people, every single one of of which has been meticulously crafted by God in his own image, and that God has known since before the foundation of the world. And so so Jonah's problem is that he's too self-concerned. He's too focused on his own particular perspective, but he doesn't see things from God's perspective. That, you know, from his point of view, like, the, the Nineveh, that's just a city full of my enemies that do 
bad things and cause me discomfort and bitterness. You know, they, they attack Israel and eventually, you know, they'll take away the northern kingdom entirely. And therefore, it must be worth far less than this plant because at least this plant, it's not my enemy, it brings me a little comfort, it brings me a little shade, it brings me a little happiness. And what he should see it from God's perspective is Nineveh, the plant is just a plant, but Nineveh is a city of 120,000 people who are, yes, very sinful, they are idolatrous, uh, they are foolish, they cannot even tell their right hands from their left, but they are meticulously crafted by God in his own image, and they have this great worth. Uh, and so this, for me, this raises the question, which is how do these finite creatures, these sinful people in Nineveh, have this great worth? And the, the answer, I think, is in three ways, and the text sort of, sort of suggests this obliquely. Um, the first is that we are made in the image of God, meaning God made us in his own image. We are supposed to be his statues. We are supposed to, like living statues that pattern out his glory to all creation. And so, like, by analogy, you know something, like, if, if a great artist produces a work of art, you know that that work of art is going to be valuable. Um, even if it's, like, not very good. You know, so you can get, like, a Picasso hand-drawn print for, like, $500 or whatever. Um, but, you know, we're more than just any old work of art, and God is, is, is more than any old human artist. That, that God is the perfect and most, you know, talented artist in, in, the, in, the, well, in the cosmos, but he's outside of the cosmos. But, uh, and we're not, we're not just like his throwaway piece of art, we're his masterpiece. Right? So it would be like Da Vinci's Mona Lisa or Michelangelo's David or Michelangelo's David or Michelangelo's Pieta, which I personally like more. Uh, and so, you know, this is his masterpiece. And yes, the fall has corrupted the masterpieces so that um, we imperfectly pattern his glory. But no matter how corrupt or wicked we get, no matter how far we fall from grace, we still bear God's image, and we're still his masterpiece. And so the adversary is very busy, and he's working, and he's sort of like trying to scratch it up, and he's covering it up with dirt, and he's trying to like mar that masterpiece and, and hide its glory uh, through sin and, and, and death. But he just keeps, he's like, no matter how much stuff he puts on it, he can't hide the beauty of it. Because the, the mark that God has put upon us that we are made in his own image, is indelible, meaning it cannot be erased. It cannot be fully covered up. That w everyone has this mark to proclaim, this creature belongs to the great creator. This creature belongs to God most high, the Lord of hosts. The second, so we're all made in his image. Second, get some nice tr Trinitarian flavor here. Uh, we've been bought with the precious blood of Christ that we know the value of something based on the, the, the price that was paid to purchase it. So like, even if you know nothing about the sneaker game, if I told you that there's a, pair, there's a, there's a sneaker called the Nike Red October, uh, designed by the greatest living artist of our generation of our century, and it's worth $6,000, well, that should be enough to tell you that's a pretty rare and expensive and beautiful shoe. Uh, and so using this logic, we can sort of deduce the worth of humanity. That, uh, what price did God pay to buy us back, to redeem us from spiritual slavery? Well, he paid the price of the blood of his only son. I mean, like, God has many creatures. He has legions of angels. He has, you know, galaxies upon galaxies composed upon stars upon stars. You know, he has the whole race of humanity as his image bearers. But he only has one 
begotten Son. That Jesus Christ is one of a kind. He is true God of true God. The only begotten Son of God. And God gave him up for our sake. That he became a man and laid down his life and shed his blood so that we could be saved. And so even if I know nothing about humanity, that should be enough to tell me humanity's great worth. And so to round out the Trinitarian flavor, the third reason is that we are vessels of the Holy Spirit. So we are made in the image of God, we are bought with the blood of Christ, and we are vessels of the Holy Spirit. Meaning as Christians, we aren't just uh, made in the image of God, but God himself in some mysterious way lives inside of us. The third person of the Trinity is, possesses us and that we are vessels of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul says in like 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that we are jars of clay, yes, but we are jars of clay that hold this great treasure. And then Paul says elsewhere that you know, we're being prepared for this great honorable use by God. And so we can know the value of a container by the thing it contains. So you don't like take a $400 glass of champagne or whatever and pour it into a solo cup. And no other creature in all creation is constructed this way. No other creature in all creation is capable of being a vessel for God's Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. So note well here, as we, as we wrap, this, wrap this thought up, is that all three of these sources are derivative, meaning they are derived from God. They come from God. Our value and our worth does not come from ourselves. It does not come from our accomplishments. It does not come from our career. It does not come from our family. It does not come from our beauty or loveliness. It does not come from our intelligence. It does not come from our wealth. And it does not even come from our goodness. Rather, our worth comes from God. It comes from the fact that God made us in his own image, that God bought us with the precious blood of Christ, and that God indwells us with his Holy Spirit. This is not... Look at how great and mighty this creature is. This is, look at how great and mighty this creature's creator is. And so what that means is an implication, and I'm going to use, you know, like a caricature almost, of someone that I think we would all agree, we don't want, we don't want this person around, but it means that, you know, the drug-dealing, heroin-addicted white supremacist who hates a God he claims he does not believe in is just as valuable in God's eyes as the perfectly composed missionary who is pouring out her life in obedience to the gospel in some, you know, uh, faraway land. That every human being has great worth that is derived from God and God alone. And so what does that mean for us practically? What is the application of these truths? Well, God's great love for us and our great worth derived from God, I think, has two primary implications. Two things that we can put into practice in our life. That one is focused towards others, or towards ourselves, and the other is focused towards others. Uh, so the first one is, is focused inwardly towards ourselves, which is that we should strive for holiness. Meaning, if God values your soul so highly that he paid the blood of his only son to purchase it, to redeem it, then we shouldn't value our souls so lowly that we neglect to keep them from the enslaving power of sin. And so, you know, I'll give you an example from my own life by way of illustration, and then hopefully you can connect the dots and see how maybe this applies to your life. Uh, like Jonah, I am very prone to resentment and bitterness. 
Uh, so my flesh, my natural state apart from Christ, my old man, as Paul would say, tends to kind of mull over people's failings and the wrongs that they've done to me, real or perceived. And so like I'll have imaginary arguments in my head and I always win those arguments, which is great. Um, and you know, without a, a great deal of care and diligence, I'll just slide into resentment. And I'll, I'll, I'll wake up one day and I'll realize I'm just like being a hateful, hateful dude. That's my default state, apart from Christ. Uh, but both Paul and Jesus give very stern warnings about anger. So Paul says, do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. And so that suggests to me that, well, hey, I guess anger is an opportunity or a foothold for the devil. That I'm opening my soul open wide to the influence of the adversary when I'm being angry. Um, I'm indulging the passions of my flesh when I'm being angry, which Paul tells me is opposed to the, the spirit, right? So I'm either walking in step with the flesh or I'm walking in step with the spirit. And if I'm walking in step with the flesh, well, the risk that I'm running is I'm quenching the power of the spirit in my life. And what I'm doing is I'm treating my soul carelessly. I'm being negligent with this thing that Christ purchased back from slavery with his own blood. And I'm voluntarily resubmitting myself to Satan. I'm presenting my members as instruments un of unrighteousness to him, which is negligent. And yes, we can affirm that Christ will save us out of that and he will chastise us and discipline us and restore us to walking in the correct way if we are in him. But like, don't put the Lord your God to the test. And so what should we do instead? Well, I think we should avoid sin with great diligence and care. Uh, Titus uh, chapter 2, verse uh, 14, says that Jesus gave himself up for us in order to redeem us or to buy us back from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That God paid this great price to redeem us from a great slavery so that we could do great works for him. And so we shouldn't sell ourselves back so cheaply to, to the adversary. We should view ourselves more highly and kind of live in accordance with this calling that we've been given. So that's implication number one, kind of the, what it means for us internally, that we should strive for holiness. And I think the second implication is, is, is towards others, which is that we should be diligent in evangelism. That we should not be like Jonah and sort of just trivialize the souls of other people, uh, for which God has labored so diligently and so long. Uh, instead, I think we should, we should seek to treat others with the same love and concern that God shows for them. And we should seek their salvation and rejoice over their repentance in the same way God does. And so we shouldn't do it grudgingly like Jonah does, kind of like, okay, I guess I have my other choice, it's this or drowning in the sea. Uh, but we should do it with the same zeal and the joy of our Creator who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, and being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. But that was a mission that Jesus took up voluntarily. No one forced him to do that, and we should imitate him in that, in our ministry to the world. So, to tie it together, through our Lord's death, uh, God has proved and poured out his boundless love for mankind. That Christ is the proof of God's character. 
that God is gracious and merciful. He's slow to anger and he's abounding in steadfast love. And, and Christ's death showed the world its great worth. It showed us how highly we should value ourselves and it shows us how highly we should value others. And I think this text is pointing us to the fact that, hey, humanity is serious business. Even a city like Nineveh is serious business. Even a city like Austin with 800,000 people, more than 800,000 people who cannot even tell their right hand from their left is serious business. Um, and why is that? Well, because every human being, no matter how insignificant, no matter how poor, no matter how wicked, no matter how downtrodden, no matter how foolish, is indelibly stamped with the image of his great creator. And so when our Lord returns, in an instant, in the twinkling of an eye, Satan's attempt to tarnish the image of God will be immediately undone, and we will be transformed. And the veil of immortality and earthly decay will be lifted. And we'll look around and we'll see each other as God sees us, as these immortal creatures that eternally reflect God's perfect glory and objects of God's eternal, steadfast, undying love. And then we will ever wonder how we could have been so callous as to treat anyone, whether it's someone else or even ourselves, as anything less than fully worthy of our great and utmost concern. And so then knowing God's great love for humanity and our own great worth from God, I think we should be careful not to slip back into the mindset of us versus them. That God loves us and God loves them. And we should remember that God has given us his grace so that we can in turn give that grace to other people. That God has saved us so that he can use us as his instruments for saving other people. And so I think we should imitate our father and we should imitate our brother by being merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Uh, let me pray. Uh, God, we thank you for your love and your concern as shown by this text that you uh, do not wish that any would perish but that all would come to repentance. And we thank you for your son who you offered up for the salvation of all who believe, uh, who you, in whom you resolve the tension between your love and your justice. And we hope that you would use these words uh, that, that I've just spoken to glorify yourself in all of our hearts and, and to point us to you and to your offer of salvation in the gospel. And we pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to the Austin Life Church podcast. To help support us, please take a second to rate and review us on iTunes and visit us at austinlifechurch.com.